0: hello and welcome to the sea control podcast i'm nathan miller in this episode host jared samuelson speaks with dr elaine murphy an associate professor of maritime and naval history at the university of plymouth about her research on women in the navy in the age of sail jim jarvey edited and produced today's podcast simsec is looking for a volunteer to join our technical team and support our web operations we're looking for someone with a background in WordPress implementation and support, as well as a knowledge of web hosting and networking. Some knowledge of identity management and security operations is also helpful. Please reach out to content at simsec.org to share your background and discuss. I would like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a Simsec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of Iron Brew Bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men.
1: Sea Control, by the Center for International Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Elaine Murthy, and we're going to be discussing her ongoing research on women in the Navy and the age of sail. So, Elaine, welcome. Could you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your background, please?
2: Uh, Thank you very much, Jared. It's lovely to have the chance to speak with you today. Uh, So I'm a lecturer at the University of Plymouth in England. And um, for the last number of years, I've been researching um, the Navy in the 17th century. So really the Stuart monarchs and their navies. I started off researching the period of the civil wars and privateering and piracy at sea. And in recent years, my research has expanded out into uh, women on board ships and working for the Navy in the 17th century and then into the kind of wider age of sail, if you go from there. So that's really my background.
1: Well, thanks again for coming aboard today, Elaine. As a reminder of the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So the article that I reviewed for this, Elaine, entitled A Water Body House, Women in the Navy in the British Civil Wars, appeared in the book, The Maritime World of Early Modern Britain and Focused on the Period of the British Civil Wars. We'll have links to all this in the show notes at at the end, but we correspond about the age of sail. What time period did you choose to focus on? How did you get into this research topic?
2: Um, I think this research topic really came about um, when I was doing my PhD, which is quite a while ago now. I was researching the civil wars uh, naval warfare, par- privateering. So there were a lot of different navies operating, supporting the royalists, the parliamentarians, the confederates in Ireland and various different forces. And so I was very much interested in naval warfare, high politics and um, logistics. And then a number of years ago, I kind of went back to some of this research and I discovered there were actually a lot of women at sea in this period. And there were a lot of women in my archives doing things with the Navy, working for the Navy on board naval ships. And it really got to me thinking well, are there more? If I go and look in the archives, will I find more women at sea in the 17th century? And I initially thought, you know, I'll find a handful, one or two here and there. And then I went into the archives and it wasn't one or two. It was lots. And lots of women doing business with the Navy, working for the Navy, women on ships in different capacities, women nursing wounded sailors. And all of a sudden, what had been a very, very narrow essay on the Civil War period became something much, much bigger with hundreds, if not thousands of women involved with the 17th century navy so kind of it started off as something that i'd had for years and i never thought about it and then just came back to it and started thinking about what's going on here
1: now you wrote right that it was difficult to find information on women on navy vessels prior to the 1640s why was that the case and what changed in that time period what sorts of materials are available after that
2: i think one of the real problems with finding women on board naval vessels is the way records are kept women were there But it wasn't unusual. So sailors didn't necessarily write about them. So if you think about ships' logs, and indeed I'm sure this is probably true today to some extent, you cover important things, the wind, the weather, uh, maybe stores coming on board, a sailor being punished. Uh, In the 17th and 18th century, there's often a column called Remarkable Occurrences. And you might note that you saw a whale or a landfall or something interesting like that. But actually, nobody puts down in these logs that there are women there because it's just the norm you only really find women in ship's logs when something unusual happens that's usually if they die or fall overboard an accident or something like that and so what you really have is and what i've had with my project is trying to find women can be difficult so if you you just think initially i thought oh i'll read ship's logs but there are hundreds if not thousands of them and you go through them and you find nothing because it wasn't noteworthy to put it down but then i started thinking well where do you go what can you look at and what struck me was well You often find that women appear in times of crisis, moments when something happened, something went wrong. So if there's a storm and a ship goes down, if a boat overturns going ashore from the ship, if there's some sort of accident or disaster, an explosion at sea. And, of course, these are wooden warships. Think about candles, loose gunpowder. Explosions are not uncommon. And that's actually where I find a lot of women on ships. So at that kind of moment. So in uh, 1665, there's a ship for London, and it's sailing down, and it's going out on a voyage, and it explodes. There's a gunpowder explosion, and most of the crew are killed. And it's if you read Samuel Pepys's diary, he notes that there's about 24 sailors saved and one woman. And so it's kind of those moments of crisis, something going wrong, that you often find women on board the ship.
1: Now, under what circumstances do women start to interact more with the Navy after the 1640 time period? And I have a whole list of these here I could follow up as necessary, but I know you've I think you've got the same list in front of you.
2: Yeah. Um, Well, really, in the 1640s, the Civil War takes place and the English Navy, as it was, it's parliamentarian controlled by Parliament, Oliver Cromwell at this point in time, as it will become and essentially because of the war the navy starts expanding under Charles I the navy hadn't been that large, there'd been a couple of very big very famous ships like the Sovereign of the Seas but from the 1640s onwards the navy starts expanding and people often start referring to this later in the 18th century as the fiscal naval state but really what you see through the 1660s King Charles II is a massive naval expansion and what you're really looking at here is the Anglo-Dutch wars of the 17th century so there are three of them in the 1650s 1660s and 1670s and you have this massive naval expansion going from a very very small navy of approximately 20 ships to having hundreds of ships and so what you have is a mass influx of men sailors into the navy Obviously, their female relations, women, their families, their friends coming to visit more sailors on ships means more women visiting ships, more women traveling on ships. Military expeditions, campaigns abroad means soldiers traveling on naval ships, means their wives are traveling on naval ships. And then, of course, if you're building more and more ships, you're looking at more and more dockyards, women working in dockyards, working for the Navy, doing these things. And of course, battles means wounded sailors. So you have more and more injured and um, seamen and then you need how do you cope with all of these this isn't an era of specialist military and naval hospitals it's really not until the 18th century that you see the kind of specialist naval hospitals being built in places like Plymouth and Haslar and Portsmouth so essentially sailors are just landed in nearby port towns and put up in local people's houses or local inns and cared for by local women. And so essentially what you have is this massive naval expansion, which means more and more women become involved with the Navy and more and more women appear in the naval records. One of the things I always tell my students is you've got to love bureaucracy. And the Navy is a bureaucracy that keeps records and it keeps really detailed records. And this is how you can find these women.
1: What sort of work uh, were women doing in the uh, dockyards in particular?
2: Well, what surprised me about this, I think initially as a historian, I didn't expect so many women and so many different types of work. So you have women involved in every aspect of ship building. Some of them are actually building, owning companies that are building the entire ships. But you have women in the dockyards as ships painters. So going on board ships and painting them, glaziers, ironwork. work. Um, a lot of women involved in woodworking, supplying wood to the Navy. But every aspect, anything you can think of that went on a wooden ship, then women were involved in building it or making it, often as contractors. So it's not just so much that a woman is going into the dockyard and building the ship. She might be employing men who build the ship. So a lot of women are involved as contractors in the sail making business. So they're involved in getting protections for their their workers so that their workers aren't impressed and forced to join the Navy. You have women directly involved in making things, especially textiles, which was very big women's employment in the 17th, 18th century. So flag making is often done by women and when you think about how many flags are going to be destroyed by at sea by rats in dockyards and also by the constant changes of politics in the 17th century so you've lots of women involved in making flags my favorite woman workers are actually the rat poisoners So there's a woman called Anne Pearson and you know she's so effective that she gets the contracts to do different dockyards and she essentially goes round the dockyards and onto the ships laying poison to kill all the rats and of course the rats are eating the supplies they're eating the flags so that there's these kind of lovely interactions between it but the, the rat poisoners are just really good fun.
1: So tell me if my analogy is wrong here, but this sounds to me uh, a lot when we talk about the expansion of the women's participation in the dockyard workforce, a lot of like World War II type things where the men are going to these ships and then the women are used to fill those roles. Um Of course, at the end of World War II, you saw women kind of like go back to the households as the men came back after the war. Do you see that kind of thing in the historical record or they just continue to occupy these dockyard roles because of the size of the Royal Navy over the course of the age of sail?
2: I think they actually continue in this. This isn't, um, a, a short term kind of, uh, World War Two in, in the grand scheme of things is re- a relatively short war. This is a long term, long term wars here. So the, these women get in and they're doing business for a long time with the Navy and they continue to do so. You see their families continuing, often their sons. And some of these women have been involved as their husbands were involved and th- these businesses continue for a very long time. And, These women are trusted. Um, There's a lovely example of a woman in the 1640s, Mrs Leverland, sometimes called Loverland in the records. And essentially she starts off doing business in one place and the Navy is expanding in Portsmouth and they need a new nail shop. So a shop making nails in the dockyard in Portsmouth and she bids for the contract and the local dockyard officials don't want to give her the contract. But the person who's in charge of the Navy, the Earl of Warwick, the Lord High Admiral, he actually writes a letter and says, no, we're giving her the contract because she's the most reliable. She provides credit when other people won't. And we see this with other women in the dockyard. Sometimes some of the male contractors write in and say, you shouldn't give that contract to her. I'm a man. I shouldn't. The Navy just looks at who can provide the best quality at the best price. And if it's a woman, they will give the business to a woman. Now, there is the caveat on that. Sometimes it's harder for women to get paid than men. So for occasionally it may be just that it, well, it's easier to not pay ex-woman but i mean the, the women are very good at standing up for themselves writing letters and demanding that they're paid but also withdrawing their services refusing to do any more work deliver any more supplies and writing to important members and more uh, parliament important lords important naval commissioners they're very active they've great agency in their own behalf.
1: and yeah uh, you and i discussed offline as well the sort of where spouses start to appear in the historical record so where do you see that
2: yeah, when well, you start seeing obviously um women contractors, um, often they start off as widows, their husband had business. What's impressive to me is actually sometimes their husband's business is actually quite small scale with the Navy and they take and they grow this business. But you also see... um sailors wives we tend to think of the navy and sailors in the age of sail as being very young and fancy free a wife in every port and these ideas but actually if you um peel back the details you find a lot of sailors in the 17th and 18th century were actually married they did have families at home and they were concerned about the welfare of their wives and children. How are they going to survive when they were away? What happens if your pay is years in arrears, which it can be in this period? How are your family going to survive? What happens to a woman if her husband is killed how does she get his back pay how does she get any bonuses due to him what happens if she's starving what happens if she's living somewhere hundreds of miles away from a major naval port and has to go there to get her pay it's not like nowadays where people are paid every week or every two weeks and you know the pay goes directly into your bank in this period you might have to as a woman travel hundreds of miles up to london to the navy pay office with a docket to try and get the money off them and how much does that cost you? And, that, you know, so it's very difficult. So it's interesting seeing that the strategies women have for surviving, for coping with their husbands away at sea and how they, they deal with this.
1: Uh, what experiences were unique to women going to sea?
2: Well, I think we have to think about what a wooden warship was now obviously modern warships tend to be a lot bigger than in this period so if you actually look at the size of the smallest warships i'm dealing with are probably about the size of a double-decker bus in terms of length so you know these are not huge ships so women are going onto a wooden warship that's not designed for them if you think about their clothing it's going to be long skirts not going to be wearing trousers not short clothing easy and they're going into a space that's especially naval ships it's not designed for women It's not designed for passengers. It's designed to fight. It's got lots of guns, lots of men. So a merchant ship sails with the smallest possible crew to make a profit. A naval ship sails with a much larger crew because you have to fight the guns on board in this period. So women are going into this very cramped conditions, these cramped spaces with a lot of men about where they're going to have very little privacy. So even if you're an elite woman, uh, a noble or that, you might say, well, you have access to the great cabin, you have a cabin to sleep in, but you won't be sleeping there on your own you won't necessarily have any private space. So a lack of privacy is going to be something that's going to affect a lot of women. Or if you have got any privacy, it's not real privacy in the modern sense. You might just be putting up some canvas screens at night to kind of create a bit of an air of a cabin. So it's not great. But also think about practical things like where do you go to the toilet on a wooden warship? Again, a space designed for men. And so you have the heads at the front of the ship, which which are effectively just a public toilet seat where anybody can see you there. Along the side of a ship, you can have urinals called pistails, but again, not very practical for women to use in this period. So that's a difficulty. But of course, the early modern world, the age of sail world is very different to our world. We expect privacy nowadays. How much did people expect privacy at that point in time? So it's very different to us. Um, There's a great example of a chaplain in the 17th century called Henry Tongue. And when he first goes to sea and chaplains are brilliant because they're often not experienced with the naval world. So when he first goes to sea in his diary, he writes about his experiences and seeing women. And he talks about seeing the men and women on board his ship. And the women are half drunk, half sober, and they're in a quiet corner, half dressed with the man or women are in the hammocks. And they're publicly having sex with, as far as he's concerned, with their husbands or their sweethearts. They're not even necessarily their husbands. And Henry Tongues a bit. I don't know. You can almost see him with his kind of his mouth open, aghast at some of this. But he gets used to this, and it's just a, a very different world, very different concepts of privacy that, than we have nowadays.
1: Well, that's a great transition because uh, my next question is: How did the British public perceived women's presence aboard naval vessels, and then how did that change over time?
2: Yeah, um- I think in this period, there's not necessarily a huge amount of public perception of women on board vessels. Women are just there. So members of the royal family go on board naval vessels all the time. They travel on them. They visit them. The monarchs are often very invested and very interested in their navies. So queens and princesses travel on them. They go and visit them. They launch them. So I think there's quite a lot of publicity there you occasionally get a lot of publicity around women in disguise on board ships. So occasionally if they're revealed and this um, publicity is often quite positive, kind of almost like it's a joke and good on them type thing. But in terms of most of the women on board ships that most of the public, if they're away from a naval port, probably just don't know about it, don't think about it. Sailors, on the other hand, have a very different perception of women on board their ships and We have the idea, I think, nowadays that this idea that sailors thought women on board ships were bad luck, that sailors were very superstitious. And you do get some examples of that where sailors will turn around and blame women for misfortune. So bad weather is occasionally blamed on witchcraft and women. Um, uh, Accidental gunpowder explosions are on a couple of occasions blamed on women and misfortunes like that. So you, you do have these examples. Um, in the mid 17th century, you have a major outbreak of plague in England. And again, this idea that the ship is pestfully pestered with women, and that they bring disease with them is quite common, especially among senior naval officials. But I think what really interests me is actually once you dig past that a bit and actually if you look at the ordinary sailors and some of the ordinary things, the women are there. And when the women go ashore and you read this in officers letters, uh, the diary of that Chaplain Henry Tung, the men are sad to see the women go ashore. They want them there. They enjoy their company. So other than a few people who blame women for misfortune, most sailors are actually pretty happy. Having women on board and enjoy their presence, and women seem to partake in the activities of the ship. Um, the Stuart age is a very sociable age, and there's a lot of social drinking on ships in this period. And you see women participating in this, in the revelry and the toasting and the dining. And you hear that sailors talking about dancing on their ships. And again, they enjoy having women there. So this idea of women as bad luck that sailors didn't want on the ships, I think, is. Is a bit of a cliche and not really true in this period.
1: Did the Royal Navy have an institutional position on the presence of women aboard its ships?
2: This is one of those things that's really difficult to find out because um, in the mid seventeenth century, the Navy starts issuing rules and regulations, uh, kind of naval instructions, articles of war that set out the rules for sailors. So they'll say things about um, you know. Um, no smoking in certain areas, um, not to blaspheme about uh, not deserting, not wasting gunpowder, all of these things. As you go through the mid 17th century, these rules and regulations become more and more elaborate and they're printed and they're issued and quite a lot of them survive. The first set of rules I've found that actually explicitly ban women from naval ships, stated sometime around 1699. And after that, as you move into the 18th century, it varies again. Some rules say that, you know, the captains can have women on board the ships so long as they're the wives of the sailors and not prostitutes. But it's very difficult. How do you find out that somebody is the wife of a sailor? You know, everybody doesn't necessarily carry their marriage certificate around them. And captains seem to just Turn a blind eye to this. So it's really, really difficult. It's up to individual admirals and captains a lot of the time about what they do. So as you move later into the 18th century, you'll see admirals like uh, John Jervis in the Mediterranean ordering women off the ships because he feels they're wasting fresh water and washing laundry. And that if he catches any more, he'll send them home to England and he orders captains to stop bringing them. But then other orders happily say women are allowed. The Swedish Navy in the mid 17th century, for example, um, explicitly allowed women on ships so long as they're the wives of sailors and also that the women had to go ashore before there was any action. So I think the kind of mid 17th century Navy took a practical approach to these things and women at sea travelling on ships. But I've never actually found any English women on a ship during the Anglo-Dutch wars. So the women are clearly going ashore before the ships go into action, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Can you speak at all to the motivation of why the wives would want to go to sea with their husbands other than just like being close to one another? Because you and I talked about this offline. There's actually a very practical reason for it that we probably don't think about today because of the way our pay functions.
2: Yeah. In this period, um, pay is often in arrears, but the pay is given to the sailor himself or a pay ticket which he could leave to his wife but pay isn't remittances aren't sent home so if a sailor is away at sea his wife and family at home won't receive any wages they won't receive any remittances it's not until quite late in the 18th century that it's possible for sailors to have some of their pay sent to their wives or families every week so essentially if you're a sailor and you go to sea and you have a wife and family at home they have no income from your wages unless they have some other means of working so for some families this was a practical solution it's common enough for warrant officers the skilled men like the carpenter the same. bring your wife along she can help with the business she can possibly help do the work for other sailors it it just makes sense now we see a lot of sailors wives involved in businesses on shore and they run lodging houses ale houses all sorts of different work but it, it is difficult to make ends meet and a lot of them will end up on the charity of a parish and of course the the parish charity won't necessarily want to the poor laws won't want to pay out for them so for some women and especially um soldiers wives sailors wives traveling with your husband is much more desirable because you'll have food and supplies you'll have his protection so it's um it's more complicated than nowadays where presumably most sailors are going to allocate their pay to their family at home
1: I'm sorry, that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Elaine Murphy. Uh, Elaine, where can we find you online and what are you working on next?
2: Um, I'm hoping to finish a book on women and the Navy in the 17th century. So that'll be my kind of next major publication. And uh, I'm online, I'm on Twitter at Plym Privateer. So it can be found there and on the University of Plymouth's website as well.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us, to listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.